The Hope for Our Times Conference is coming to the Hyatt Regency Resort in Indian Wells, California, June 28th through 30th. People from all over the world will be gathering at the amazing Hyatt Regency Conference Center for a life-changing exploration of the prophetic Word of God. Featuring over 15 world-class speakers, including Pastor Jack Hibbs, Jan Markell, Dr. David Reagan, and Pastor James Cadiz. Their dynamic messages will expand your understanding of Bible prophecy and your ability to share it with others. Visit HopeForOurTimes.com and reserve your spot today. We have a limited number of rooms at the Hyatt Regency reserved at a special rate just for this conference. Visit HopeForOurTimes.com to reserve your room. Well, hello. So good to be here with all of you tonight. I'm so happy to to have the privilege of sharing God's Word with all of you. And I don't take this privilege lightly at all. So uh, very, very grateful to Pastor Tom to trust me in this way. And so I want to say right now, welcome to all of you, and then also want to say hello to everybody joining us online. Welcome to Hope for Our Times. It's going to be a good night, I pray. Um, Everybody saying hello? All right. Um, I just want to open up with a word of prayer, if I might. Uh, If you would join me, let's go ahead and go before the Lord. Father, we come before you right now as we're about to open up your inerrant and your infallible word. Lord, we pray that you would bless us with continued presence, Lord, that your, your spirit would be here. Give us understanding, give us wisdom, and give us the courage to apply what you're going to speak to us tonight to our lives, that we would be effective for you as we live and breathe here on this earth. Lord, you are not done with us yet. You have much you want to accomplish in us and through us, and we cannot do it without you. So fill us to the point of overflowing now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, again, just glad to be here with you guys. And I want to let you know that I firmly believe this, that what is in this is not just a Bible. This is the inerrant and the infallible word of the one true living God. Two fancy theological words. That means everything that's in here is perfect. It's right. It is unchanging. It doesn't contradict itself. It's never been proven wrong, never been proven to change. It's the same as it was yesterday as it is today. God willing, we wake up tomorrow, it will still be the same. Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but this will endure forever. And it's because of that and the the high regard we hold God's word, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to make your way there. Matthew chapter 13, the title of tonight's message is The Beginning of Separation. The beginning of separation. Um, I'm just going to give you one verse real quick before we get into it. Verse 40 of this text, Matthew chapter 13 says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be in the end of this age. As the, as the tares are gathered and they're burned in the fire. What we know from this scripture and this parable that we're going to be going through tonight is there's going to come a point in time here on earth where God is going to separate out true believers from false believers. He's going to separate them out. And the true believers, we know where they go. uh, But the false believers, they are gathered up. They are burned in fire. We know where that is as well. Uh, A place called hell. It's not pretty. Uh, It's not a place that people want to talk about, especially here in 2018 in America, because we don't want to talk about hell. We don't want to talk about consequence to sin. But it's a real reality. It's in the Word of God, and it's something that we need to know about. And I'm pretty excited for an opportunity to talk to you about this parable tonight because it's been for about three, three and a half years now that God has given me a recurring vision of 
him beginning a work of separation. That what he's doing, he's, he's already begun. He hasn't completed it and hasn't done it yet, but he's begun the process. And I firmly believe this. And so before we get into the parable tonight, I just want to talk to you about the idea of progressive prophetic revelation. Um, let me explain it to you this way. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 4, we see a change in language. So if you've studied the book of Daniel, you know it's written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew and it's written in Aramaic. And as you begin in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, it's Hebrew. But when you get to chapter 2 verse 4, there's a switch. We see that switched over to Aramaic and it stays in Aramaic all the way through chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, there's a switch again. It goes from Aramaic back over to Hebrew. And this is important for us to understand because what this tells us is that there's going to be, we see God's focus and God's attention on the nation of Israel, but you see him kind of switch his focus, switch his attention. And he's looking at the Gentiles. We know that there's a time here on earth called the age of Gentile supremacy. So God's got his focus on the the, the Gentiles as well during that time. But then there's going to come a very distinct point in time where God is going to be done with his focus on the Gentiles. The age of the Gentile supremacy will be over and God's going to switch his attention back to the Hebrew people. Now that has not happened yet. And the reason I bring that up is because when God does things prophetically, he doesn't always do them all at once. What we see is that God will begin that work of what he's doing. He has not completely switched his focus over to Israel. How do we know this? We're still here. Right. He's still working with the church. He's still doing what he's doing through you and through me. And thank God he's using us. Um, so he has not switched his attention over. But what we have seen all the way back in the late 1800s, like 1897, we see the Zionist movement. You fast forward to 1917, you see the Balfour Declaration. God starts bringing the Jews back. You see 1948, the birth of the nation. You fast forward to 1967, you see the Six-Day War, and they recapture Jerusalem. You fast forward to 2017, and you see Trump name Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish people. You're seeing this work that God's doing. He hasn't completely switched over to focusing just on the Jewish people yet, but... You can see that that work has begun, and you can see it's progressing, and that's what I'm talking about when I say there's this progressive understanding of God reveals how he's going to fulfill what he said he's going to fulfill. So in that idea, um, we know that there's still things that have to happen. We know that the most holy piece of property on this planet is not yet taken over by the Jews. We know that they've They've taken over Jerusalem, but the Temple Mount is still ran by the Arabs, is still controlled by the Arabs. And listen to this, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21. Jesus says, they will be killed by the sword or sent away as captives to all nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until, listen to this, the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about what I was saying in the book of Daniel. That there's this time where God's working with the Gentiles. He's going to refocus back on to the Jewish people. Jesus says, listen, the temple's going to be trampled on. That's going to go on and on and on until the age of Gentile supremacy is over. 
And so what we find in Daniel, you find even Jesus himself making mention to and telling us to be looking forward to this, that this is something that's going to come. So what happens when the time of the Gentiles is over? Well, we know that God does refocus his attention fully back on Israel. We know that that final seven-year period in the uh, chapter 9 of Daniel, the 70th week of Daniel, we know that that begins, and we know that that is that final seven-year period where you have three and a half years of apparent peace going on, and the Antichrist is going to walk in halfway through. He's going to set himself up to be worshiped as God in the temple Mount, and that's going to begin three years, three and a half years to finish out that 70th week, which is going to be all hell on earth. You all know about this. So the thing that I want to talk to you about tonight is this, that like I said, God has given me this vision for the past few years that that work of separation where God comes into the world and says, okay, you are a true believer. You are not. And here's the fact, only God knows. We can, we can judge a tree by its fruit, but the fact is, God's the one that knows who a true believer is and who a true believer isn't. God starts to work that work of separation, just like he worked, he's working the work of refocusing back on Israel. It didn't happen all at once. It, there's going to be a moment where it's very clear, but God began that work. It's been going on. Same thing with this, with the separation of the wheat and the tares. God has begun that work, and I want to explain that to you tonight. Hopefully, by the end of this, you'll be going, okay, I kind of of see what you're talking about, Pastor Tim. You're not all that crazy, Um, and I'll tell you, I've got people telling me I am, Um, and I'll kind of share some of that as we get into this, but God has definitely begun this idea of separating out out the wheat from the tares. So if you're a note-taker, I'm going to give you five takeaways tonight. Five things that you need to consider for yourself to see, am I correct? Has God begun this work of separation? Um, I'm thinking that you'll find that we're probably all going to be in agreement. But tonight, I'm going to give you those five takeaways, and I'm going to tackle, at the end of this, I'm going to tackle two of them. I want to I share with you what I believe is going on with two of those takeaways. And then uh, Pastor Tom has agreed to have me back so we'll see how I do tonight, and then uh, maybe I'll be back. And if, uh, if he has me back, I'll finish the final three with you next time I come back. So you all ready? Yeah. All right, let's do this. So Matthew chapter 13, let me just go through this parable. Remember, a parable is just an earthly story. It gives us a very heavenly meaning, and this is really a cool parable. He's, it's in verse 36 where it begins that Jesus sent the multitude away. I'm sorry, wrong verse. Go back to uh, verse 24. Another parable Jesus put forth to them. So Jesus has been teaching in these parables, and he says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But, verse 26, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then also the tares appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the end of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So this is the parable of the wheat 
and the tares. And I'm going to give you five takeaways out of this. The first thing is this. The beginning of separation becomes clear when believers can easily recognize false Christians. When you and I are believers and we've got the Holy Spirit in us, you can see that this beginning of separation is very clear when you and I can look into the life of a person who professes to be a Christian and with the Holy Spirit we can go, that person probably isn't quite there yet. So let's take a look. Matthew chapter, chapter 13 verse 24 we see there that Jesus is teaching in this parable. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So verse 24 opens up for us some context, if you will. What are we talking about here? The, the kingdom of heaven. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven in scripture, we're talking about three different things. We're talking about the spiritual realm, which, of course, we know exists. You know, Elijah was able to see into the spiritual realm and see all the, the people that were for him and against him. Um, there is a spiritual thing going on all around us, whether we recognize it or not. And God's kingdom is very spiritual. So there's a spiritual aspects. There's, of course, the future aspects of the kingdom of God. We know the Lord's going to return. He's going to set up his thousand-year kingdom here on earth, and we've got all into eternity. So there's the, the spiritual aspects, the, the future aspects, but then there are the very physical here and now aspects of God's kingdom. And we find that in God's work here on earth through you and through me, through the church. And what we're talking about in context here is the work of God here on earth through the church. So in the kingdom of heaven, you've got different types of people. And the reason I want to make this context for us is when we're talking about wheat and tares, we're not talking about necessarily believers and unbelievers. What we're talking about is people within the church, people who show up on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night for church service and say, I'm here and I'm a Christian. I'm part of the church. God says amongst those people, you're going to have two different types of people. Those who are bearing fruit, those who are real, true Christians, and those people who are false, fake, empty. That's the context of what we're opening up with here, that, that in every church you're going to find people who aren't truly believing in Christ. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, is it not? And you might say, you know what, I'll just go find a church where there are no tares. I'll go to a church where everybody's a real Christian. And I would say to you, good luck. And when you find it, let me know, because I would like to go there. Um, but here's the, here's the fact. There's always been terrors. Always. There's always been people within the church. We know this if you study church history. You go all the way back to the very beginning. From the start of the church, there were people mixed in that were there for one reason or another. Whether it was just a selfish reason or a foolish, ignorant reason, they were there they pretended like they were apart, and really they had no desire to do what God's called them to do. So it's not something new, but what I suggest to you is that the further and further we get along in this thing called life, and the closer and closer we get to the return of Christ, you're going to find more and more people are within the church, but they're not actually part of the church. They're not born again. They're just there, and they're, they're empty. Now, what we have to ask ourselves, it's important for each and every one of us to just ask this question. Am I truly a believer? Do I really 
believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have I really fully entrusted my life over to him? Is there, and this may sound cliche, but is there enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian? If I was to stand in a court of law, maybe you guys have heard this before, but some people haven't heard it. And this is a good question. If I was to stand in a court of law and being judged as to whether or not I'm truly a Christian, would there be enough evidence in my personal life to say yes, without a doubt, that guy, Pastor Tim, he truly is a Christian? Could they say that about you? And not only am I saying this is a good idea, I'm saying this that, that we should do this because God's word tells us to do it. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says to examine yourselves, to take a look at your own life. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So the idea there is you and I as believers, we should be testing ourselves. Do we have Jesus Christ in us? Do we have the spirit of the one true living God dwelling within us? And if we can't answer that, well, then we're failing the test. I can tell you without a doubt the Holy Spirit of the one true living God is within me. I know this for a fact, and it's so real for me that when I gave my life to Christ, I was living in such sin prior to that. I'm not perfect now, don't get me wrong. My wife's sitting right over there, and she will tell you what a piece of work I can be. But I'll tell you, prior to me giving my life to the Lord, I was living like hell. And when I gave my life to the Lord and I accepted his spirit within me, there was such a radical change in who I was that physically I looked different. When people saw me, they some something's different about Tim. And it was such a radical change that it was notable. And even how I carried my, I don't know what it was, but somehow people would see me and right away there's something, something's changed. And it was drastic for me. And I, I, there's no doubt and I feel the conviction when I'm doing things wrong. And I feel the power when I'm doing things the way God wants me to. And, and I feel the spiritual warfare because now the light's in me and the darkness doesn't like it. There's no doubt. And that's a question every believer has to ask. Do I truly have God's spirit in me? And if a person can't answer that, they're on dangerous grounds. Uh, if you're here tonight or you're watching online, you can't answer that. My hope is that you'll walk away tonight being able to answer that. We need to ask ourselves these hard questions. How do you know if you have Christ in you? Well, let me tell you, there's two things. Number one, well, let's find, we find it in 1 John chapter 3, okay, the two things. It says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in these two things, in deed and in truth. Keep those two words in mind, in deed and in truth. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. We will assure our hearts before Jesus. We will know we are of the truth. We will know we have the spirit within us if we love in deed and in truth. In other words, if we live godly lives, if the things that we do indeed, the things that we do are godly, and we believe the truth, we gladly receive the word of God and say yes to everything that's in it, not just the parts we like, not just the parts that are fun, but even the parts that are very, very difficult to get through. We, lead, we, we have this ability by the Spirit to hear what God says in His Word and go, yep, I believe it with all my heart. Paul said to the church at Philippi, he says, work hard. This is Philippians chapter 2. He says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. This is something you and I, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is something we're supposed to work hard at. 
to, to go about life showing these results of our spiritual walk with Jesus, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Not only did Paul say this, Peter said it in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, so dear brothers and sisters, work hard. Now work hard to make a lot of money, work hard to make your way in life. No, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. What this means is, if we're going to be Christians, we can't just be casual about it. We can't be casual Christians. Casual Christians become casualties. You and I are supposed to be hardcore, working hard, proving what we have in us. And that's not important just for us to show the world, because we do our good deeds to what? Get other people to see and glorify God in heaven, not to attract attention to us. But when we prove that, when we're working hard to prove it, we're not only proving it to other people and drawing people to the Lord, but we're proving it to ourselves. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people and like, I don't really know if I'm saved. What a horrible feeling to not really know. Because that, that, that's scary knowing that tomorrow ain't promised to you. Man, I want to know that I know that I know. And I'm glad that I know that I know that I know. Keep those two things, though, if you would, in mind. Godly lives and glad acceptance of the revealed word of God. Second thing tonight is this, that, that the be, you know, you're, you're going to know that there's this beginning of the separation that's taking place, and it becomes very clear to you and me when believers recognize, easily recognize, false fruit. So there's false Christians, there's far, false fruits. So take a look at verse 26. It says that the, when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So two different things are showing up. The, the grain is rising up, the wheat is rising up, and it's producing a crop. What is a crop? A crop is fruit. A crop is sustenance. A crop is something that's of value, right? But then at the same time, these tares are coming up. Tares, they're just a weed. They look just like wheat, but they're a weed. You open them up, and there's nothing in it. And actually, they're very poisonous to human beings. So they don't have any sustenance. They don't provide anything good. They're just poison. But outwardly, they look very similar. That's false fruit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, says that we should know something. We should know this, and Timothy should know this, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times where people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to parents, and ungrateful. Sound like anybody that we know. They will consider nothing sacred. Marriage isn't sacred. Church isn't sacred. Nothing's holy. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. Listen to this. They will act religious. They will have a form of godliness but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Stay away from people like that. These are people that will act religious, that outwardly they look the part. They got a nice suit. They're very eloquent in how they speak. Man, they look awesome. And yet inwardly, there's no fruit. It's like Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. You know, you look real pretty on the outside, but inside is dead man's bones. There's no fruit inside. It's just empty poison. 
They're going to act religious. It's going to look like there's fruit there, but it's a false fruit. Third thing is this. It's going to become very clear when believers can easily recognize false doctrine. Easily recognize false doctrine. Verse 27 of this parable, Jesus tells us that the servant's of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. An enemy's come in. I sowed the seed of God's word, but an enemy came in and sowed the seed of poison, the seed of death. God's word yields good fruit. That's what God's word does. But what does Satan do? Did God really say that? Did did God really, you know, did he really say those things? It started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It starts twisting God's word and sowing something that sounds very similar, and yet it's very, very destructive. And we're going to talk about false fruit when Pastor Tom has me come back, but let me just tell you real quickly. We're, I'm sorry, false doctrine. Um, let me tell you this real quickly. The reason we see a lot of false doctrine, I'll tell you, false doctrine is on the rise it's everywhere, and it's becoming packaged in a way that looks so similar to what you'll find in here. It's unreal to me. The more, I, the more I'm looking into it, the more I'm seeing something that's so close and yet so backwards. And here's the reason. We as a culture, not, and not just America, but I'm talking about the world, we've become functionally illiterate. We, we are. I mean, all around the world, social media is on the rise. People, and I'm not joking, I have seen people in loincloths in the middle of a jungle with an iPhone in their loincloth. I'm not joking. And they'll pull this iPhone out of their loincloth. I mean, they're shooting monkeys and eating monkeys out of a hut, and yet they're on their phones. It's incredible. And they're, they're typing in whatever, whatever they're typing in, but it's a certain amount of characters or less. Why? The enemy wants us to grow weary of reading. Why? Because he doesn't want us reading the Word of God. Why? Because when you read the Word of God, it changes who you are from the inside out. And this is what's going on. As a, as a culture in this world, we have become functionally illiterate. Nobody wants to read anymore, especially not God's Word. That's what's going on. So we're seeing false doctrine. When you don't know what's in here, it's really easy to get trapped by something that's fake. So we need to be in this, but we'll talk about that when I'm back. Fourth thing is this. It becomes real clear to know that God has begun that work of separation when real, true believers can recognize false leadership. False leadership. I hate the fact that we have to talk about this because it really bugs me when I see false leadership within churches. But I'll tell you, it's nothing new, but it is something that's on the rise. And again, it's becoming very clever. False leadership. Verse 28 the servants continue by saying, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Listen, we are all growing together. We're all growing together. And this is what we find in 2 Peter chapter 2. God's word tells us there that there will also, there will also be false, or sorry, there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. So this is what we know. Yeah, there was false prophets in Israel, but now the church is born, there's going to be false teachers in the church too. People giving out a false message. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many 
will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. There is false leadership all over the place, cleverly devising how to grab hold of people and draw them away from what God wants them to know and what God wants them to do. And we're seeing it everywhere. And it's on the right, and it's so attractive. It really is. If it wasn't, people wouldn't be going to these leaders. These leaders are so attractive. Their message is so fun. Sounds so good, and yet it's so destructive. Let me give you our fifth takeaway this morning. This evening. Thank you. False fellowship. You can easily recognize false fellowship. Verse 30 says, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Listen, if you and I receive the word of God into our hearts, it's going to produce fruit. As it produces fruit, people should be able to look at our lives and go, that person truly is a Christian. They should be able to look at our lives and judge the fruit on our tree, if you will. We need to be doing the same thing. We need to be looking at the lives of other people, judging the fruit that's on their tree. Now, I know that's not popular in our culture, because what, is, what does the world say right now? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. And here's the deal. They're right in a sense. We are not to judge the unbeliever. Who are we supposed to judge? Other believers, right? I mean, this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hold one another. This is what we call accountability. We look into the lives of one another and go, you know, I know you're a believer, but that, that's not going to work. That's not really good. And I'm open to you telling me, hey, you know what, Pastor Tim? You're a pastor. You should not be doing that. And I should go, you know what? You're right. Thank you for judging the fruit on my tree. This is, this is good fellowship. False fellowship is all over the place where people are growing up together and say, oh, well, you know what? That's how they live, but who am I to judge them? And so we'll just all be together and let's be nice to everybody. And, and that just doesn't work. That's not going to work if we're going to have true fellowship. And that's, again, it's not popular, but that's just how it is. So those are the five takeaways. You've got these things, false Christians, false fruit, false doctrine, false leadership, and false fellowship. So I want to talk to you about two of these tonight. So in order to talk about these things, we have to talk about something that's not real exciting. We have to talk about the unfruitful works of darkness, and we're going to have to expose those things. And I'll tell you this, there's, there's two things that we're supposed to be as believers. We're supposed to be light, we're supposed to be salt, right? And I have grown up now in the church for a number of years. I've been a pastor for like 15 plus years. And I can tell you, I have seen the church try to be those two things in a very effective way at times and a very ineffective way at times. Because here's what I've seen. I've seen the church want to be the light in the sense that they're attractive. And that's true. Light is attractive. We should be attractive. And I've seen them want to be the salt in the sense that, hey, salt is flavorful. And we should add flavor to our conversations, and people should enjoy having us around. I get that, because that's what salt and you know, light are supposed to do, attract and be flavorful. That's good. But that can't be all there is to the light and the salt. Because here's another thing light does. Light exposes what's in the darkness. It exposes, and God calls us. We're going to talk about this in a second. God calls us to expose these evil works. 
So we're supposed to be that light that exposes. I haven't seen the church really doing that very well in my lifetime. I've seen it attracting, but not revealing, not, not showing people what's in the darkness. And I've seen us being very flavorful, but guess what salt does? It stings a little. Why? Because it's killing the germs. It's preserving. And the church, a lot of times, they don't want to do that because it's not popular. And you're judging me. And stop judging me. Okay, I'll stop judging you. I'll just be nice to you. It's not going to work. It's really not. If you look at the culture that we live in, it's not working. That, that idea of not stinging a little bit and not revealing, it's not getting us anywhere. So we need to be what God's called us to be. Here's what God says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you were once darkness, and I know, I told you already, I was once darkness. I can tell you unequivocally that is, that is the case with my life. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light for The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Listen to this. Have a little bit of fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. No. Have none. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. This is the Word of God. And this is one thing I love about the Word of God, especially as a pastor, because all I need to do is open up and stand firm on this and say, you don't like it, this is what God says, go argue with God. But, you know, we don't want to expose their darkness. We want to be nice and loving to them. It's not getting us where we need to get with them. It's letting them just continue on in this path of darkness. God says, listen, you are light for a reason. Expose it. Expose what's going on. Not popular, but it's all right. (laughs) I don't have to be popular. It's that simple. Expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things. And this is why I want us to hear this tonight, because I said we're going to have to talk about some some unfruitful works of darkness. God says it's it's shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So it's shameful to talk about the things that they're doing. And we shouldn't talk about them just for the sake of talking about them. Listen, we need to talk about these things very purposefully, and that is to educate ourselves. To educate ourselves so that way we know how to avoid them. And so let me talk about some of these things. We're going to talk, these two of the takeaways tonight is false Christians, false fruit. That's what I want to address tonight. So false Christians. True Christians lead godly lives. True Christians readily accept everything that is in God's word. So let's talk about the false Christians. False Christians have rebelled against God on every level. In the Garden of Eden it started, right? Did God really say that? Did God really say that he hates divorce? I mean, you know, she's kind of a pain, isn't she? You know, you'd be better off without her. After all, you know, you're, you know she's getting kind of old and you could trade her in for somebody much younger, you know. And, and I don't know, does God really, did he really say that he hates it? Did God really say to spank your kids? I mean, after all, you want, you want your kids to like you, right? You want your kids to like you. And, you know, if you spank them, you're going to lower their self-esteem and you're not going to have a good relationship with your kids. So did God really say to spank them? Did, did God really say that, 
that he created the heavens and the earth in six days and then took the rest on the seventh? Did God really say that? You know, because science shows us that something else happened. So, you know, did God really say that he doesn't want you enslaved to debt? Did God really say these things? Those were the things that were big when I was growing up. How many of you have, have seen that in the church? I've seen this. This, this when I was growing up, the, the big talk was divorce. It was spanking your kids. Uh, you know, these types of things. And if you're here tonight or you're watching online, you've been divorced. I'm not here to chastise you. God does say he hates it, but here's the fact. There's a reason he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. Because whether it's divorce or it's abuse of a child or whatever the case, you've been watching pornography, no matter what your sin is, God says he sent his son to die for that. So I'm not here to chastise you, but what I'm telling you is there's truth in God's word. He says he hates it. He says spank your kids. He says to be not in debt. I mean, these are things God has said. And Satan's going to come in and go, well, did he really say that? You know what he's doing now? He's saying, did God really say male and female that he created them? I mean, you know, after all, you know, if a guy thinks he's a girl, shouldn't we just love him the way he is and accept that he's a girl? Did God really say that? Did God really say that a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined together with his wife? I mean, maybe God meant joined together with his husband. Maybe. And he's, he's got this lie that he's propagating in, in our culture. And I'm not saying just America. This is worldwide. Worldwide, all throughout the church, we're seeing this lie creep in. And what we're finding is there are people who say, I'm a Christian. And they're buying into this lie. They're flying the banner of Christianity, and yet they're buying into the lie of Satan. It's continuing to, if you ask me use a bad word, progress. <laughs> it's not progressive to me. This is, this is regressive. This is degenerate. Um, but this is what's going on. And there are people that fly the banner of Christianity that have bought into this lie. You know, back in 1993... 89% of Christians who had shared their faith in Jesus, they agreed that it is the responsibility of the Christian to share their faith in Jesus, to evangelize the world. Here today, only 64% think that. So it's dropped in just that short amount of time. It's dropped 25%. Incredible that people, you ask Christians, this, this means, you know, you've got 35% of the Christians that they don't think that, that they should even have to do it. Now, I'm telling you, if those people, there's a good chance they really haven't given their life over to the Lord yet if they don't know that it's the very very call of a Christian to share. The, there's a reason we're still breathing. And think about it. You give your life over to Christ. You have eternity secure. Why else are we still here? Because there's not much to enjoy here, really, when you compare it to heaven, Right? But we're still here. We're still alive. We're still breathing. There's a reason for that. Other people need to know what Christ has done in our life. That way they don't go to hell. It's called the Great Commission. Simple things, right? To me, the Great Commission is Christianity 101. Go out into all the world, share this good news. Very, very simple. You know, let me just share a slide with you. This is out of Barna Research. If you look at this, 51% Talking about the, the Great Commission, have you ever heard of it? 51%? They have never even heard of it. Don't know what it is. This, is. this is Christians, right? So churchgoers, 51%. I don't know. I don't, what's, what is this Great Commission thing? You look at, at 6% of them, they're not sure what it is. And then 
you have 25% to say, yeah, I've heard of it, but I can't really recall what it means. I don't know what this is, right? You, you, you add this up. You, this is incredible to me. You add this up, and you've got over 80%. More than 8 out of 10 people who go to church, I don't know what this whole Great Commission thing is all about. That's disturbing, is it not? That, that you've got people who fly the banner of Christianity, and they go, I don't even know what, what this thing is. We're supposed to go out. What? Commission? Jesus said something. We're supposed to do something. Christianity 101, you know? This is simple stuff. 82% don't know what this is about. You know, people have spiritual doubts. Let me show you another slide. When people have had spiritual doubts, 45% of them just stop attending church. Yeah, I'll just stop going. I don't need to go to church. I'm, you know, I'm doubting this whole Christian thing, so I, just, I won't even go to church. 29% of them, they just stop reading the Bible altogether. 29% stop praying. They just stop. They just give up. You know, the, the parable right before this parable we talked about tonight, it talks about soils, right? And there's these different soils, and, and one of the soils, you know, that it sprouts up real fast, but the cares, the worries of this world, they come in and they just choke it out. The sun comes out and just withers away. Why? There's no root in itself. There's no root in itself. Well, you know, my mom was a Christian, my dad and my grandparents were Christians. But what about you? Has it taken root in you? I'm having doubts. Well, I'll just stop going to church. The question is, did it ever take root in that person then? The likely answer is no. Well, let's be, let's be real about it. The likely answer is no, it has not. Let me talk about things that Christians are about. You know, 42% of, of the adult population in America, 42% are notional Christians. Okay? 42%. So we look at, at those people, just the notional Christians, right? 38% of them support Black Lives Matter. Now, this is a, an organization that will say fry pigs, fry cops like bacon, right? And it doesn't sound like a very godly message to me, but let's support them. 38% support them. 39% advocate for LGBT rights. 39%. That's like roughly 4 out of 10 people who say, I'm a Christian. They go out and they publicly defend the lifestyle of the people that are involved in LGBTQ+, whatever, whatever they're doing now, right? This is what's going on. I'm a Christian, but I think that lifestyle's Okay you got to read the Word of God then. This is simple stuff. A man shall leave his mother and father, be joined together with his wife. The two shall become one flesh. A man shall leave his mother and father and join together with his wife. In the beginning, God made male and female. These things are simple. They shouldn't be complicated. And yet, people within the church are saying, I advocate for them. I think it's good. That lifestyle is okay. But you know, you know why? Because my brother, he's gay, and my sister, she's a lesbian, and I love them. And, you know, I don't like the idea of a God that would say that what they're doing is wrong. And, you know, love wins. Let me just redefine love for a moment. <laughs> love wins. And they're, they're redefining things. They're supporting this kind of stuff under the banner of Christianity. 45, or 46% are pro-life Okay, 46% are pro-life, which is good that those 46 are pro, 
46% are pro-life. That's good. Here's the problem. That means there's 54% that support the killing of children, the murder of babies. And they go, I'm a Christian. I would submit that they're not, that they're false Christians. Just a thought. You know, as, as a Christian to say, well, no, I think it's okay. You just kill the baby. That's the worship of Molech. Whether they recognize or not, it's worship of Molech. This is a false pagan religion, and they're thinking that that's okay. Now, I may sound a little dogmatic about this, but I don't care. Because this is what God is showing me. He's reaching into the church, and he's going like this. He's, he's just separating out. Things have never been clearer for us as believers All the things that we look at politically, these things that have been politicized, it's not even political issues. Abortion is not a political issue. This is a moral issue, but it's been politicized. This, I'm telling you, it's never been clearer. You're either for God or you're against him. That's it. You know, you look all around. I'm going to say a lot of things that are very objectionable sometimes, but you know, you, you look at borders. Who wants borders? I'll tell you who wants borders. God wants borders. It's that simple. Why? How do we know this? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. All the way back. God's the one that sent them out and sent them out in different nations. God's the one that does this work. Who is it that wants to tear down borders and make one world? The Antichrist. That's it. Things have never been clearer. You're either for God or you're against him. It's that simple. It's, I'm telling you, I, I see God just doing like this in the church. And you're starting to see it go one way or another, and you're starting to see the true believers going, this is insane. Look at the world. What, what are we, and look how fast it's going. How is this happening so fast? Well, God said it would, like labor pains, right? It's going to happen more frequently, more intense. Might I suggest it's happening pretty frequent? Might I suggest it's becoming more and more intense as time goes by? This is happening. It's just crazy. Listen to this, as far as cohabitation. This is amongst Christians, right? Practicing Christians. Over four out of ten of them think that cohabitation is a good idea. Now let me just define in case nobody doesn't know what I mean when I say cohabitation. It means you're living together, having a sexual relationship together, and yet you are not married. So more than four out of ten Christians say this is good. I'm sorry, but this is Christianity 101. This is not difficult. We should be able, we're going to talk about this when we talk about false leadership. We should be able to answer these sexual questions. These things are simple. It's very simple. Sex is between a man and a woman who are married. Anything outside of that, whether it's homosexuality, bestiality, whatever it is, adultery, anything outside of a man and a woman married is wrong. Easy. Two-year-olds can get this. Mommy and daddy, it's, it's pretty simple. For a Christian, this is not a difficult thing to answer. And yet there are people that, that can't answer it. We'll talk about that when we get to the leadership. It's unreal to me. I got to hurry up. All right. Um, I'll tell you this. As a pastor with this whole cohabitation thing, do you know how many times I've had people say, when I tell them, you, you're living together, you're not married, well, you got to stop doing that. How many times I've heard this? Oh, pastor. Oh, you don't still believe that, do you? I'm not joking. Those exact words have come at me more than I can imagine. 
Oh, you don't still believe that, do you? When that's so old. <laughs> I've stood the test of time, people. This is simple, you know. When it comes to spirituality, let me give you one more, one more thing here. Spirituality, roughly one out of three. We're just going to say one out of three for, for time's sake. One out of three. Um, people who pray, so this is, you know, amongst practicing Christians, right? They strongly agree that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. One out of three Christians. One out of three Christians say that the meaning and purpose come from be, being one with all that is. And one out of three Christians, if you do good, you will receive good. If you do bad, you'll receive bad. So this, this new spirituality is creeping into the church all over the place. One out of three. Let me just give you, okay, so the last thing is this. So how many of you know, and this has been a big thing for me, James Charles. Have you ever heard of James Charles? James Charles is the first ever male cover girl. Okay. The reason I bring this up tonight is because just yesterday in Temecula, there was an event in Temecula, and uh, I got all sorts of garbage over this one because I just gave a nice, polite little post to the Christians that, you know, that Chick-fil-A's out at their event, at the event where this, this young kid was at, and they're there, and they're a vendor at, at this event for this. And so I just said, hey, you know, if you think that that's a bad idea that a Christian company would be at this, just call the Christian company and let them know. Here's their phone number. Oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe the backlash I got on that one. But it's this simple. Christians are supposed to hold Christians accountable. You know? And this is a teenage boy named the first male cover girl. Teenage boy who's doing this kind of stuff and makeup. 39 million followers on social media. 39 million. And look at the confusion it's adding. And you know, I, I had Christian, Christians complaining to me because they were there with their kids and their family just loves this. And how dare I go and say that we should call a Christian company accountable to this because, you know, this, this it's so nice. Look how nice he looks. And, uh, you know, my kids love him and we're there at the event. And, you know, it's, we got to be nice and we got to bring the light of God into a place like that. And if we don't go to these things, we're not bringing the light of God. And might I suggest if you're going there and the light of God in you is not exposing what's in the darkness, you're not being the light of God anymore. You are a false Christian. Simple stuff. Again, I sound a little dogmatic, and I get a little on fire with this, but you know why? I get jealous for God. I get jealous for Him, because He's called us to be the light. He's called us to be the salt, and it's not an easy thing to be those things. People are going to talk bad about you, and here's the fact. The most loved person to ever walk this planet is who? Jesus. The most hate person, hated person to ever walk this planet is who? Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. So if you are walking with the light of Jesus within you, and everybody likes you, you're not being what God's called you to be. It's that simple. People aren't going to like it. It's that simple. Am I making sense here? Okay, I'm talking to the right group of people right now. We got to pray. For, don't get me wrong. We got to pray for this young man. He's a teenager. He's a pawn in this game, and he's being used by corporations, exploited, and it's a sad, horrible thing. I, I say nothing bad about him. I feel bad for him. But it's the Christians, the Christians that are showing support, that it's a good thing. It's maddening. Let me close with this final thing, this takeaway, the false fruit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare, this is Jesus himself saying, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now notice Jesus didn't say you didn't cast out demons. He didn't say that. He didn't say that you did all these great things in my, you didn't do all these great things in my name. He just said, I didn't know you. This is showing us that there will be false fruit. There will be apparent signs and wonders and miracles that take place even amongst people who say they're Christians but have no intent of ever doing what God's called them to do. It's a sad thing. What this tells us is that these signs and wonders aren't what we need. You know what we need? We need the Word of God. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate this in us, that we can be everything God's called us to be. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be popular. In fact, it's going to be increasingly unpopular. And yet, we still need to do it. There is a progression taking place. And just like we saw the nation of Israel, God's starting to refocus His attention on Israel And we see that this is something that he's begun, but he hasn't completely done it yet. There is a progression that's taking place within the church. God has begun the work of separation. Can you see it? He's begun the work of separation. And we're going to see a a very quick work of separation, but not the ultimate work of separation. But we will see a very quick work of it when he takes us up. When we get raptured, we're going to see even more separation, are we not? I'm telling you, God's doing it. These things are happening at an alarming rate. Our eyes need need to be opened. God, time and time again, tells us to do something very critical. He tells us to watch. And I know I'm speaking to the right people, because why are you here on a Sunday night, hearing a prophecy message? You're watching. You're seeing what's going on. What's the enemy doing? What is God doing? God is doing a work of separation right in front of us. Let's pray tonight as God is confirming in our hearts that his spirit is there. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you for giving your spirit to us, Lord. For giving us the ability to have that discernment, to to look into the world, judge a tree by its fruit, to, to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be, Lord. Give us a courage to do that. Give us a faith to do that. Give us a strength to do that. Give us a boldness to do that, Lord. You need us to be that here on earth. I pray that we would do that every day until you've called us home. Embolden us, Lord. Let us take our faith in you very seriously. Let us never shy away from speaking the truth that is found in your word. Help us every single day to open it up, to dig into it, to just soak up your word so that way we would not be deceived. Lord, if there's anybody in here tonight that does not have your spirit. They have not confirmed that in their heart. I pray they wouldn't leave this place the same way they walked in, Lord. That that they would have that assurance that they know that the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is living within them. In fact, Lord, I just pray for their soul right now. That struggle that's going on even right now as we're here. If there's anybody here right now just with your heads bowed, everybody's heads bowed, your eyes closed. Would you just raise your hand if that's you this morning and you, or this evening and you just need to, to get right with Jesus. You want to know that you know that you know that the Holy Spirit of the living God is within you. Just raise your hand. I want to say a prayer with you. Maybe you're watching online and 
that you don't know for sure. I don't want you to end this evening not being sure. It's too important. Tomorrow is not promise to anyone. I see you, sir, with your hand raised. I see you, ma'am. God bless you so. So grateful for you. I see your hand in the back. I see your hand. I see your hand. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I have not lived the way you've called me to live. But I know that you sent your only son, Jesus, and he lived a life of perfection. He died a death on a cross. He went into a grave and he rose again. But that's not where the story ends. He sent his spirit to live within people, to give them strength, to give them hope, to give them boldness and wisdom and understanding of your word. And so I receive your spirit now. Father, fill me up with your spirit. Let me never be the same as I was when I walked in this place, Lord. Let me be so encouraged. Let me be so strong in you. Would your strength be made perfect in my weakness right now? Use me for your glory and help me to be highly effective for you as I continue to live and breathe on this earth. I promise tonight that every day when I wake up, I will live my life for you to the best of my ability. And when I mess up and I already know I'm going to, Lord, you already know I'm going to, would you pick me up? Would you clean me off? And would you encourage me forward? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.